The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Perfectionism is something we anxious achievers deal with every day. Last week, we heard from Emmy Niedfeld about how her upbringing and difficult childhood and adolescence pushed her to physically and mentally unhealthy behavior. Today, we'll continue the conversation on the need to be always perfect and what it means. Later in the show, we'll hear from Eleanor Beaton, an author and leadership expert, about her own story of perfectionism, deeply rooted in her childhood. But first an expert in perfectionism, to tell us a little bit more about where it comes from and why it affects us. Thomas Greenspawn is a licensed psychologist and a marriage and family therapist. He's written the books What to Do When Good Enough Isn't Good Enough and The Real Deal in Perfectionism, A Guide for Kids. Here's our conversation. I'm curious, actually, what what got you interested in studying perfectionism? Uh, I have both a personal and professional interest in the topic. Probably in the 90s sometime, I got interested in it because somebody had uh, published an article about something that they were calling healthy perfectionism. And somehow or another, this struck me wrong. Uh, Actually, I'd been writing about perfectionism for quite a while before that, just brief notes in a newsletter. Mm -hmm. But this this article struck me, so I decided I wanted to write about it. I talked to the editor of a journal, and she suggested I put my ideas together and, and write something up. And as I was doing that, I, it started to occur to me that these are some of the things that I'm dealing with here. Some of these ideas, these sound strangely familiar. <laughs> as I got to thinking about it, some of the things were applying to me in my own, own personal life. Mm. I started talking about that in my own therapy. And, you know, it sort of ballooned from there. So your own perfectionism showed up for you in that you expected the writing product to be perfect. Yes, if the paragraph that I wrote, and and when I started writing, uh, this was back before word processor, so literally there was a typewriter there, and I, I would type a paragraph and look at it. And if it wasn't absolutely perfect in my mind, I'd tear it up and start again. Mm. And, you know, writing became such a hassle and such a burden under those circumstances because I was so self-critical and so on that I quit doing it for a long time. Hmm. And at that time, I didn't understand what it was that was going on. You know, I just figured, okay, well, I'm not a very good writer or whatever it is, but it didn't occur to me. I was so self-critical that I was making myself into a terrible (laughs) writer. (laughs) Oh, well, to that point, I'd love you to define perfectionism. And I also want to bust through some of the myths surrounding perfectionism, because I think there are a lot of myths. This is interesting because as I got to thinking about this more deeply and as I've written professionally about the topic, it's occurred to me that typically when we talk about perfectionism, we really are talking about the symptoms of it. Mm. So, you know, you can define perfectionism. I mean, there are stereotypical perfectionists, you know, the person who is hyper anxious and who is uh, a high achiever and over involved and over committed and burning the candle at both ends and so on and so forth. And there are other kinds of symptoms of perfectionism as well that are almost on the flip side of that coin because there's some perfectionists who are procrastinators. Mm. Not all procrastinators are perfectionistic, but some, some perfectionists will put off doing things basically because they're afraid of being judged. 
So there are a lot of ways of of defining. Uh, when I, when I talk with people, I talk about perfectionistic behaviors. Those are some of the symptoms that I just mentioned. There are perfectionistic thoughts and perfectionistic feelings. A lot of times perfectionists are people who are very angry with themselves or feel ashamed or whatever. And among the thoughts, it turns out that for most perfectionists, possibly all of them, the thoughts, the thought processes that go along with it have a lot to do with, number one, making a mistake means there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. So there's a defect involved. And number two, what that means is that you're less acceptable as a person. So if you look beneath the symptoms of perfectionism, what you begin to understand is that perfectionism is really a self-esteem issue. It's an issue the meaning that you give to making a mistake has to do with some sense that it that it means that there's something wrong with you that uh, you're defective in some way and that therefore you're not going to be acceptable as a person that's what i mean when i say it's a self-esteem issue so it goes very deep mm. and we really have to pay attention to that with people we're working with who are perfectionistic if we're going to get anywhere so I think that we we do have myths around perfectionism and that perfectionists are always the best, right? They're the people who are the great artists yeah. and the great, you know, you always read about film directors, right, who don't stop until every frame is perfect. And <laughs> and we sort of we sort of right. idealize and almost reward the concept of perfectionism, but in truth you're saying that's not all perfectionists. Yeah, actually, if you do research, and this, this this research has been going on for, I don't know, 40 years now, what you end up finding is that in various groups that you examine, uh, you, law students or athletes or a whole bunch of different kinds of groups have been tested along these lines, you'll find actually that the people who are most successful at those pursuits are the ones who are less likely to be perfectionistic. The people who are highly perfectionistic are not likely to be as successful. And, you know, what we understand about that, at least from the point of view that I'm arguing from psychologically, is that perfectionism involves so much anxiety about how you're doing that it tends to get in your way. And so it, it turns out that you know, perfectionism stands in your way. Uh, so those very highly successful people are actually less likely to be perfectionistic. When I'm speaking with, with audiences, I, I, I say that, you know, this kind of thinking always leads to, to what I've called Greenspan's mantras, which are highly successful perfectionistic people are successful not because of their perfectionism, but despite it. <laughs> That's one. And the other is, you know, if if I could magically wave a magic wand and get rid of your perfectionism, your success is not likely to change because it isn't perfectionism that leads to success. It's your talent and your energy and your commitment. And none of that would change if I eliminated your perfectionism. So talent, energy, and commitment are what is what are the the important factors here, and uh, perfectionism is not connected to that. So you know, again, uh, what we end up seeing is that perfectionism ends up you know getting your way. It's it's a vicious irony, you know, because it 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 seems like if I struggle to make myself perfect, then I'll be highly successful. But it turns out that if I struggle to make myself perfect, I'm stamping on my own feet. But it must feel like a chicken or the egg for a lot of people. I mean, I, myself, it's like, you know, did I have that yeah. success because I was perfectionistic and I pushed myself so hard? Yeah. You know, so I better, yeah. I better keep doing it. Yeah. So, so I like to distinguish for people between perfectionism and the pursuit of excellence. Okay. Uh, there's a major distinction there. If you're a person who, again, burns the candle at both ends, you, know, you put all of your energy and your effort into something, you're very conscientious, you even wear yourself out and all of that, that's great. You're pursuing excellence under those circumstances, but we can't say that you're perfectionistic unless there's some other things that are also true about you. 
And I always explain that perfectionism is like a wing of an airplane. There's a leading edge and a trailing edge. The forward edge of perfectionism is all of that energy and commitment and all of that talent and, and all of that conscientiousness, the willing to put in the effort, all of that. That's the leading edge of perfectionism. But you aren't perfectionistic unless the trailing edge is also there, which is the fear of making a mistake. Basically, that's what it comes down to. And if that's part of your psychological makeup, if you're concerned about making mistakes, if you worry about making mistakes, and if deep down inside of you, you feel like you're going to be less acceptable to other people, if you make mistakes, they're not going to like you as much, they're going to judge you, whatever it is, then perfectionism is part of the picture. So for me, the bright line that divides between the pursuit of excellence and perfectionism is the presence or absence of this fear of making mistakes and this sense that you're less acceptable if you do. And a fear of, I guess, also of feeling shame. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's why uh, that, you know, that's involved with this issue about self-esteem. You know, if, if you feel like there's something wrong with you for making a mistake, there is shame involved in that. And that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we do all kinds of things in reaction to shame. We try to bury it. We get very angry at other people. You have these, uh, there's another stereotype about perfectionistic people is that they drive other people very hard. If you're part of a project that I'm involved in, and I have to be perfect, then of course you have to be perfect also, or else I feel like it's a reflection on me and my shame kicks in and I get mad at you for not being perfect. <laughs> I, I have to tell you an anecdote, which is that I noticed my perfectionism showing up for me this weekend, right as I was thinking about talking to you, which is that, you know, when I get really stressed, I get controlled over my eating and my exercise. It's like a very old bad habit. Mm -hmm. I had told myself that I was only going to eat in a certain amount this weekend. That's just what I do to try to feel control. And instead, I ended up eating a whole box of cookies yeah. because once I had one, I thought, oh, God, well, now I've blown it. I'm not on my plan. I might as well eat all of them. <laughs> and then, of course, I felt horrible, shameful, like I was yep. a bad person. And I thought, that's yeah. my perfectionism showing up. The irony yes. is I ate a whole box of cookies I did not eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there, for, for some people, I don't know if this is true for you. I don't know you that well. But for some people, maybe this is true for you. I know it is for me. There's also another very deep issue involved in a situation like that. You know, when we're thinking as perfectionistic people and we're thinking that whatever this project that we're involved in now has got to be done absolutely perfectly, there's a sense of a lack of agency in that. Mm. It almost feels like we're being controlled by some outside forces. And in some cases, the way we translate that is, well, you know, we're being judged by other people and they're controlling, you know, our lives and they're making it so that we have to be perfect. And, you know, we feel out of control. We feel what in psychology we call a lack of a sense of agency. So think about this for a second. You're sitting there with this box of cookies and you're going to control what you're going to eat and you're going to make sure that you only eat a certain number of cookies or whatever. When you, you sit there and say that to yourself, what you're thinking is, you know, I have no agency here. This is, these are these outside influences that are controlling me. And so what are you going to do? You're going to exert a sense of agency by eating all the goddamn cookies <laughs> that you want. <laughs> and, and so it becomes a, a, a matter of personal agency and and that's another one of the vicious ironies about perfectionism. You know, it drives us to do things that we know we shouldn't do. And that just increases the shame. You know, it increases a sense of being totally out of control, that there's nothing we can do. It's one of the reasons why so many perfectionistic people not only have what we would label as anxiety disorders, but also are very depressed. Very many times people who are depressed and, and suicidal end up also being perfectionistic. 
You know, those two things can run in parallel for people. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Tom, do you find that a lot of adults don't even realize that they struggle with perfectionism? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do, <laughs> first of all. And secondly, you know, and, you know, this is a whole bigger issue. We live in a culture that sort of breeds perfectionism. And so to some extent, for some adults, being a perfectionist leads to, to what people have called humble bragging. You know, I, oh, I'm such a perfectionist. <laughs> when a person says that, it's, it's like they're being proud of something that they know drives them nuts. And the reason for that is that we tend to lionize people who are highly successful in our culture. And we also... You know, since we since we live in a very hyper competitive and individualistic culture, we tend to to think of uh, great success as a mark of sort of uh, personal accomplishments, something that somebody does entirely on their own. It's a sign of their great intellect or their great capacities or or whatever it is. And we tend to ignore the fact that nobody is successful entirely on their own. You know, there are always contributions from other people in one way or another that lead to our success. And so when we're very successful, it feels good to us in our culture to think that we've done this all on our own, and that's great. And, of course, the flip side of that coin is when we don't do so well, if we fail at something or don't do, don't do a good job of it or whatever, we feel like that's entirely a personal flaw of our own also, and the shame tends to come up again. So... You know, we, we have this attitude about perfectionism that it's somehow it's something that it's bad and it's a uh, it's a sign of a disorder of some sort. But on the other hand, you ought to be perfectionistic. Otherwise, you won't be successful. So we're we're really of two minds about this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does perfectionism usually have its roots in one's childhood or can it happen as an adult? So. <clears throat> To understand the psychology of perfectionism, there's a couple of things that's important to know about human psychology in general. Mm -hmm. And when you ask about whether it starts in childhood, the answer to that is yes. We don't know how young, because the younger a child is, the harder it is to measure something like, you know, something as complex as perfectionistic behaviors or thoughts and so forth. But the idea that a mistake being something is wrong with you is an idea that comes from childhood experience. Mm. And it can arise in a whole number of different ways. When we're young, from birth, 
if not before, we're always interacting with other people in our environment, first with people who are extremely important to us, our parents and other adult caregivers, and then that circle expands. And from those people, from our interactions with them, from how they seem to be with us, from the way we learn to, to be in the world with them, we develop what in psychology you refer to as a set of emotional convictions or organizing principles. And these are these these really end up constituting our sense of reality about the world. And you know, one example of that is is the emotional conviction that if I make a mistake, it means there's something wrong with me. Of course, that can arise in any number of ways. And some kids grow up in families that are very criticizing and, and very demanding. And uh, it seems to the child that if they make a mistake, their parents are disgusted with them or angry with them or look down on them or don't accept them as much or judge them or, or whatever it is. And so clearly there's something wrong with making a mistake. That's the conclusion that we come to. That's the emotional conviction that we develop. And that becomes our sense of reality. You know, that's a, it's a, we don't even think about that anymore because of course, if you make a mistake, it means that there's something wrong with you. And then to go along with that, it means that, you know, people are upset with us or they don't like us as much or we're not as acceptable and so forth. And so we tend to develop those emotional convictions. We all do as we grow and develop. If, on the other hand, the environment that we grow up in is very accepting, and if uh, the, you know, the people who uh, are adult caregivers are essential others in life are thrilled to see us and, and happy that we're part of their lives and separate what they think about us from how we accomplish things so they like us for who we are as opposed to for what we can do then we feel good about ourselves as people despite the fact that we make mistakes sometimes that that's okay you know we make a mistake we learn from that we grow and we develop and everything is fine everybody makes mistakes those are all the emotional convictions that we develop in an environment where it seems like we're acceptable to other people and they like us not for what we can do, but for who we are. Human beings, in an evolutionary sense, are meant to connect with one another. So connections are vitally important to us. Like I say in, uh, when I'm speaking with audiences, we were never big enough or strong enough or fast enough to survive in the world unless we banded together with each other. And we do that through empathic connections with one another. We have a sense of belonging to one another and a sense of understanding of each other. And so that sense of connection with other people is crucial to us. And if it feels to us like people don't like us or they're judging us or the connection that we feel to other people is endangered in some way, then we work very hard to overcome that, to make that better. And if you're already perfectionistic in some ways, then you'll just struggle harder to be a perfectionist. So, you know, these things do originate very early in life, right from the beginning of life, because it's right in the beginning that we that we begin to relate to others and who they are has a, a large bearing on on who we are. Mm. And I think it should be said also, as I alluded to before, I mean, we, we live in a, a larger culture that also is perfectionistic to a degree, highly individualistic, highly competitive. And so it, it becomes clear to us Another part of our emotional convictions or our sense of reality about the world is that um, you should try to make yourself perfect because that way, you know, you'll be appreciated and praised by other people. You'll have a sense of belonging. Uh, you'll be looked upon as a successful person. Right. This is a cultural trait that we have. And so as a culture, we tend to breed perfectionism, uh, which is why it makes it so difficult to overcome it. Uh, it's because it's not just an individual trait that we're talking about. It's something that's supported by our culture. Right. 
This is a question I get when I talk to audiences because I speak with a lot of perfectionists and they feel very anxious that they're making their kids perfectionistic. Mm-hmm. They know better, thanks to the good parts of our culture, which which are very much supporting in school, you know, having a learning stance and making mistakes make your brain grow and all the social-emotional learning. They yeah. know now that we're supposed to encourage our kids to make mistakes, but their kids are still perfectionistic. My kids are still perfectionistic. Is it something that we need to look hard at ourselves first? And what's the first step we as adults need to take? Yes. So it isn't so much telling your kids that it's okay to make a mistake. You know, if 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 we do this in therapy, we you know, you have people go out and, and make a mistake, do it on purpose, come back and tell us how that feels and so forth. The first thing you're gonna do is to walk out the door and try to do this assignment perfectly. <laughs> So, uh, you know, so we end up generating the kind of thing we're trying to overcome. What I say to parents and to teachers is mistakes are fine, but make sure that your kids understand that you love them, even if they do make mistakes. Remember to tell your kids always what you like and appreciate about them, separate from what they can accomplish. It's okay to jump up and down and yell and scream when they come home with an A plus and say, that's great. Mm. But it's also very important to say to your kids, you know, if you came home with a lower grade than that, I would want to talk with you about that. But I would certainly still love you as much. It wouldn't mean something is wrong with you. Mm. You know, it would give us an opportunity to learn something new. So I am always encouraging people to tell kids they will love them no matter what. And, you know, so that helps them to feel more acceptable and more understood and acceptable despite the fact that they've made mistakes. That's what I think parents can do for their kids. And also, by the way, if it feels to you like you have been perfectionistic in your life, and if you look at your child and you see them doing some things that you used to do, you're an expert on this, as it turns out. Sit down and talk with your kids and say to them, you know, I I watch you struggling with this thing and I wonder what you're saying to yourself and how you're feeling about yourself. And I'm seeing myself as I was as a young person. I used to get mad at myself for making mistakes. Is that what you're doing? Is that what's going on for you? Because if it is, let's you and I talk about this and talk about something we can do together to get beyond that. So, you know, have a conversation with them. My four factors of an approach to overcoming perfectionism have to do with empathic understanding of what's going on for perfectionistic people. That it, it, When you see a person who's perfectionistic, it doesn't mean that they're acting crazy or whatever. It means that they are not feeling as acceptable as they might otherwise. And it's important to understand that from their point of view, to understand what it means. It's important for us to, to understand what we might be contributing to their perfectionism. You know, does it seem to you like I only like you when you do well? It's important to uh, encourage our kids to tell them what we like and appreciate about them, regardless of how they've done. And it's important to have a dialogue with them, have a conversation and make that an ongoing conversation about everything that's that you've seen and everything that they're feeling and revisit it from time to time and ask how that's going. I think all those things are involved. Right. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I have always had a feeling that 50% of me is playing full out. And 50% of me is still dipping my toe in the water. And the 50% of me that plays full out is pretty spectacular. (laughs) You know, she's got a lot of energy, a lot of talent, a lot of skill. She's really cultivated that ability to achieve things and the ability to kind of align intention, like action with intention and, and create things. But there is this other part of me that can feel anxious like I'm holding back. I think that's where I personally resonate 
with the idea of being an anxious achiever. Holding back because why? Because it feels unsafe. I've done so much work around this and there are parts of me that, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, I can remember being a kid and like being on the monkey bars and just like swinging and swinging and you're just sort of like wide open, you're totally exposed, you're having fun, you're playing full out. And it's like, you don't want to get that little sort of punch in the gut, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So intellectually, I understand it's outrageous, although actually it's not. So much of the work that I do around women and influence and power has taught me that there is such a legacy there of what happens truly, you know, to women who dare, you know, to really go for it. But On the other hand, there have been so many instances in which I, chances were good. I was pretty safe to say what I wanted to say, to pursue my goals fully, but there was always this corresponding sense of being unsafe to be seen, to be heard. So again, it, it, you know, it becomes this situation in which to a degree you are, you know, you're not whole. So that has actually been, to be quite honest, like a huge part of my work, my evolving work as an adult and leader. Hmm. I feel that very deeply. I, I actually, it's so funny, right around my 46th birthday in August, I put up a post because I had dinner with a bunch of women, all of whom were women, like post 45 for sure, mm-hmm. post 50. And they felt so free to me. And I wrote, I am going to shine my light. For so many years, my light has been, it's been dim. It's been bright at times, but it has always then retreated to the shadows and I'm going to shine my light. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of not being free. And the only person keeping me locked up is me. Mm -hmm. And so many of us, men and women, we hold that legacy. So we'll dive into that. But first, tell us, like, who are you? Mm -hmm. What do you do in your career now? I am a writer. I am an entrepreneur, a mom, a wife, <laughs> soccer player. So hmm. I have a company called Safi Media. And Safi Media is an education and coaching company. We're on a mission to advance a model of economic growth that nourishes the planet, one woman-owned business at a time. And this business was actually born out of a sense of indignation. And I can remember being a kid Mm. and my mom was driving me to basketball practice and she was frustrated. She'd just gotten into just a disagreement with my dad. My parents, on the one hand, had a really productive, positive, loving relationship and an ongoing area of strife for them was finance. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. We'd moved from the United Kingdom. She's originally from Fiji to Canada. They didn't recognize at the time her teaching credentials. So suddenly she was without work and completely dependent on my dad's income. So she didn't make her own money. Mm. And this would create challenges if she wanted to do something financially, but he didn't agree. She would sometimes feel powerless. And I can remember her saying to me, you know, Eleanor, money is power. Always make your own. And that you know, I felt it. Like I still feel sort of the grit and fire of that experience. And it has really become like a defining mission, I would say, in my life and career. So now, you know, through my business, we've done that through things like coaching programs, working with women leaders and entrepreneurs. And as I continue to grow and advance the business and uncover practical pathways to accomplish that vision and that mission, We are really focused now on things like working with women's entrepreneurial ecosystems. How do you shift global financial systems so that they're more friendly and supportive to entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs? How do we start to influence government through things like policy? That's a big question. Right? So it's like our skill is finding practical projects and pathways to begin to get us closer. That's what Mm -hmm. I do. Wow. 
Well, this is an episode about perfectionism. <laughs> First of all, how do you define perfectionism and what's your relationship with it? Perfectionism to me is the conscious or unconscious turn away from our wholeness as human beings. Hmm. And the nature of being a human is to be imperfect, to make mistakes, to mess things up, to get it wrong. And I think most perfectionists understand that, <laughs> you know, intellectually. Intellectually, right? yeah. Intellectually, we understand it. And I used to think that perfectionism would be something that I would get over. Hmm. I used to think it was something that I, you know, I might potentially become wise enough to just not mess up anymore. And, you know, I'm talking about the real mess ups. Like people will have things like, you know, I think I, I spoke a little too strongly there, you know, <laughs> or like there's like the, the low key, low stakes but I'm talking about the high stakes, real mess ups that actually, you know, they don't happen a lot, but when they happen, you're like, oh my gosh, like, was it another person inhabiting my body, you know, <laughs> like at that mm -hmm. time? So I used to think that that would be something I would get over or fix. Now what I've come to understand is that for a big part of my life, I would take a look at all the parts of me that messed up, the parts of me that weren't as organized as I could be the parts of me that made mistakes, that said or did things that I regret. <laughs> and I understand now that perfectionism is taking those parts, telling those parts they're not good enough and shutting them away. And I don't do that anymore. How did perfectionism show up for you in your career before you yeah. understood it more? Mm -hmm. It would generally show up in a couple of ways. So number one, it would be if I thought something would make me look undignified to other people. If it made me look undignified or unintelligent, huh. then I just wasn't going to do it. And so I, I, you know, um, shut myself off from taking risks sometimes to doing things for the fun of it, to have fun and loosen up a little bit. That's how I really, you know, saw it. And I think the challenge is that it delayed learning because it would really, you know, I would sort of take months to debate doing things. I would have great ideas that I would sit on for a year or more, not because I didn't have the capacity to do it. I would tell myself I didn't have the capacity, but because I was being an anxious achiever, I was being a perfectionist and I was you know, I didn't want to play full out in case I messed up or something bad happened and I couldn't control the outcomes. Here's an example. I shared earlier about some of the big projects that we're tackling and taking on in my business. And this has been work. This has been a direction that we started moving in about two years ago, sort of one project at a time. And the other part of it is that they're all based around storytelling, narrative research. So using our skills as storytellers and interviewers, as researchers to uncover insight, tell stories, you know, that uncover practical pathways to create meaningful change. So I started working on that like one project at a time, starting about two years ago, more and more. It's like a big focus for us. The irony is that five years ago, I started realizing that there was a huge opportunity for me to advance my mission by partnering with some of the kind of high octane, high, high, like influential partners and connections that I had mm -hmm. who had an alignment with me around advancing women entrepreneurs. I was like, if I could just partner with them and pitch them some really creative ideas that tapped into funding that they had access to, we could really do some cool projects here. And I thought about it. I thought it was a great project, but I just kept holding back. And now I'm doing it, you know, and it's great, but I realized like three years passed. 
<laughs> you know, between when I started doing it and I could have done it. That's like three years, you know, I'm in my mid forties. Three years is a lot of time for me. So that's an example of where it really kind of held me back. I think from it has, you know, when I'm not very mindful of it, held me back from, from using the full gifts that I have in service of the goals and desires that I want to create in the world. What was the fear you had that if you reached out and asked these people, you were basically going to ask them if you could partner, if you could yeah. work together? Mm -hmm. What was the fear of what would happen? Oh, now you're asking the really tough questions. Listen, <laughs> my initial response is that it's a fear that they would say no. Mm -hmm. But that was less of, you know, I've put myself into a lot of situations where, you know, somebody said no and I was okay with it. I think the fear that I had was that it would be successful <laughs> and that then I would open myself up to criticism, to humiliation at its worst, to questioning. <laughs> and I think that comes from the sense that I really didn't belong in those rooms. And that if I took on these high profile programs and projects, which I knew I could actually do, it would speed up the rate at which I was going to get found out. For being a fraud or not yeah. smart or not mm -hmm. dignified. Exactly. <laughs> Dick, where does dignified come from? That is like a Queen Elizabeth level right? term. I'm, what, okay. what, is, what is being found out for being undignified come from? So I think it's cultural. Like my mom is from the Fiji Islands and she's actually descended from a chiefly family. And, huh. you know, in the South Pacific, especially in Fiji, so they're Melanesians, they have the, these really complex social structures and hierarchies in their culture. And she comes from this chiefly family. And so whenever we go, you can feel it. Like there's people to help us with things. There are, you know, there, there's just a lot of reverence for her family. Hmm. And she just really grew up understanding that how important it was to behave in a quote unquote dignified manner to uphold the honor of her family, you know? And I think I just kind of always, I always felt that like, you know, growing up, we were definitely raised to hold ourselves with dignity, to behave in a dignified manner, to not engage in activity that would make us, you know, cause other people to think that we were undignified or to actually be quote unquote undignified. So it just feels like the truest representation of things that I did not want, <laughs> you know, of, it felt like I the mean, truest re representation of that. Because there's little about entrepreneurship that's dignified, little. to be honest. And there's little about asking people for help, which is what entrepreneurs have to do a lot and, and what you were basically doing. We're not raised to think that that's dignified either. Absolutely not. Agreed. Right? Like, that's why I think that for me, entrepreneurship has been such a powerful, like personal development path. And I actually, like, this is interesting. Like, as I grew my business and started to surpass milestones that I had initially had about what I was going to achieve and do in the business, I noticed at a time that um, after a certain threshold, and and listen, I'm not Bill Gates, okay? I'm not trying to, this is not a humble <laughs> okay. brag around that. That's not Don't one of those. Don't need to qualify yeah, yourself. <laughs> exactly. But after a certain threshold, I really was not motivated by money. What I was motivated was by the transformation and what I was learning and uncovering about myself. Hmm. That's interesting. Which, I mean, you know. All the opportunities to be undignified, essentially. <laughs> I, I'm very motivated by money, and I guess that is undignified. <laughs> but, 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 you know what? That was a value in my household growing up. Yeah. Money and success. You know, I think that perfectionism plays out differently. I, it almost feels like a legacy of our cultural background and, and how we grew up that plays out in very insidious ways as we, as we grow and mature and become adults and, and are adults. Absolutely. I think it does, you know. And again, for me, it has been so much about a separation from wholeness. You know, it's so interesting now, like, I think this is something that I've had to so consciously cultivate because the feeling of being out of perfection, like the feeling of 
perfectionism for me is like, it's, it's a little bit like the feeling of shame, mm-hmm. racing head kind of, you know, it, uh, like this awful, dark, empty feeling in the pit of my stomach, all of those things. And now, you know, I used to treat that feeling with increased activity around achieving things. <laughs> and, you know, now what I do much more is ask myself, who is it that is experiencing this? Who is it that's saying this wasn't good enough or that you're, this is undignified or whatever? And I really try to relate to that inner self and make room for her mm. at the table in my life, but not have her kind of lead my life, but more simply that there's room for her at the table. And that has done so much. You know, I used to think that the opposite of perfectionism was acceptance. But for me, it's been a bit more nuanced than that, that the opposite of perfectionism is wholeness and the willingness to, you know, really make space for the wholeness of who we are, even the people who mess up. When you were rushing around to achieve, it sounds like maybe you were also avoiding the thing that scared you. Like you had that mix, which so many perfectionists do, of like super achievement, but also avoidance. Yeah. Because things feel too hard. Oh, totally. And that's so astute. As an entrepreneur, I think so many of us, we go through periods of transformation and then integration. Transformation, integration, Mm -hmm. transformation, integration. So we're going through a period of transformation. And I was going for a walk And because of transformation, you sort of speed up the rate at which things are happening, Mm. which for me has become the sort of call to develop the skills to be able to step into that sped up flow and Mm -hmm. slow it down, Mm. you know? Um, And so that, you know, that is how I look at leadership. But in that moment, I was like going for a walk And I was booting it. And that's like sign number one. Like I'm literally running away from something. So I'm totally booting it. And I start to feel almost like heart palpitations. And in that moment, literally what I thought, and this is so hilarious, in my mind, I'm like, I just want someone to take this pain away. Like, is it, I just want someone, is it a director of operations? Is it a, you know what I mean? Like just somebody avoid, help me avoid having to do the things I need to do right now. And I didn't put two and two together until you just talked about, you know, the desire of us perfectionists, recovering perfectionists to avoid. Yeah, I mean, perfectionist shows up as avoidance. People don't think it does because they think that perfectionism and we glorify perfectionism. We think that the greatest artists and designers and, you know, they're just the people who keep tweaking, tweaking, tweaking till it's perfect. But actually, a lot of perfectionists just don't because <laughs> it's too hard to risk failure. So you just don't. That's that's really wow. Yeah, I'm going to be on the lookout for that one, Mara. So what's your advice to anyone listening who's struggling? I think I think being an entrepreneur is really tough to struggle with perfectionism. But yeah. what's your advice to sort of start noticing? Because we've been talking a little bit about like, huh, noticing. Mm-hmm. What are some tells? You, you've mentioned a bunch of tells. Yeah. Like, what should they be on the lookout for? One of the tells for me is where do things start getting plugged up and slowed down? And there can be a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes it's quite frankly, no, it's actually timing or this is a bandwidth or capacity issue or whatever. And I'll give you an example. Like I wish I could say that I don't ever do this, but I do, of course. And now it's much more about noticing it. So I was kind of working through two projects. One was much more in my comfort zone around day-to-day stuff. And another project is the growth edge for the company. And a lot of the growth edge for the company work is about relationships and partnering and, you know, having conversations with people to check around alignment of vision. So it's about talking and it's int- and meeting and building relationships. And, you know, for mm. an anxious overachiever, for a perfectionist, what we sometimes love to do is some work, you know, as a great way to distract <laughs> And what was so fascinating is I had some meetings scheduled and then all of a sudden my day-to-day work, which is important, 
Mm-hmm. But this has been a going concern all of a sudden. I just realized it's too much. I just need to reschedule these meetings. I just have to reschedule them. That's just how it is. I have to, you know. And so I rescheduled the meetings and I got back to doing the work that was in my comfort zone. And then I realized, look at you, my friend. (laughs) That's perfectionism. So it's a little bit, you know, it is definitely... I guess that's avoidance. And I didn't, you know, and I didn't think about it as avoidance. What I thought about it was really allowing. It was really about allowing things to not, you know, know, stopping things from moving forward, putting the brakes on, stopping the flow in order to feel safe and to stay in that comfort zone. You know what I mean? Versus trying something new. Oh, I was so like, I laughed at myself and it was okay. It was totally fine to reschedule the meetings, but I'm just delaying by a week growth and joy and opportunity and innovation and creativity that- And discomfort and and discomfort. And discomfort and potential rejection. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, where are you slowing down the flow? Where are you taking steps away from the big things that you want in order to remain comfortable. So that for me is a huge tell. And of course, another tell is anytime I start to feel in shame about something. And, you know, that's like Brene Brown's big gift to humanity is the ability to talk openly about shame and to understand through that, to start to understand when we're in shame. But now I know when I am in shame, something is going on with the parts of me that think that they need to be perfect or, you know, are perfectionists and I need to really stop and, and understand what's going on and who's who of my various versions of who I've been through my life, who's saying that, like really get in touch with those. So that's another tell, shame. Eleanor, thank you so much for your time and your voice. It was lovely to be here. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MoraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.